Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 143rd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime and co-host from the East Coast of the United States of America. That's Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate you tuning in. And we appreciate you tuning in last week to our talk with the host of The Metallica Report, Renee Richardson and Stefan Shirazi. Great folks, and it was a lot of fun to talk to them. The new Metallica Report podcast is super cool. Authorized by the band themselves, coming from World Headquarters, and they're following the band around on their 72 Seasons World Tour right now, doing some really cool stuff. And Renee is a big part of the All Within My Hands Foundation, where Metallica gives back to the community. Disaster relief. Heard they just gave $200,000 to help the folks in Hawaii. Education. Helping people learn trades. They're doing amazing things within the community. So I hope that you listen to that one. But I also hope you visit allwithinmyhands.org and find out how you can get involved helping folks in your community because they're doing a great job. It was so cool to have them on. and They are part of the Pantheon podcast family, as are we, a collective of about 100 different podcasts, all music-related, not all rock and roll. There's really something in there for everybody. And I encourage you to go to pantheonpodcast.com or follow at Pantheon Pods. We're really proud to be a part of it. Now this week, you all know if you've been listening at home that Jackson and I grew up on MTV in the early to mid to late 80s when MTV ruled the world. And one of the bands that really helped explode MTV were the police. When Synchronicity came out in 1983, and Every Breath You Take, and Wrapped Around Your Finger, and King of Pain, and Synchronicity 2, they were all running up the charts. They were all over MTV, and it really sucked us in as 10-year-olds. But that's not where the police started. In 1978, they released their debut album, Outlandos Demore, coming out of London, when punk ruled the world, but reggae was a big part of the sound there. They melded kind of blues and classical talents of Andy Summers, who had been around for a while. He's a good 10 years older than Stuart and Sting, with the incredible songwriting and voice of one Mr. Gordon Sumner, better known as Sting on the bass, and the incredibly talented and underrated yet pain in the ass Stuart Copeland on the drums. They put together a killer sound that's part reggae, part punk, part rock and roll, but all police, it's very much theirs. And this debut, which featured Roxanne, which was a big hit around the world for them, Can't Stand you, Losing You, and my personal favorite, So Lonely, well, it went platinum in the U.S. It went platinum in a lot of places, which is pretty darn good for a debut, for a punk album. At least that's probably how it was marketed at first. And obviously it helped build the foundation for the next five years, which would see them release Regatta de Blanc, Zenyatta Mandata, Ghost of the Machine, and the mega multi-platinum synchronicity in 1983. So we're going to talk about each one of these songs, talk about the personalities in the band. This is one we listened to a lot as kids, so it was fun to go back with our older ears and kind of dissect it a little bit and think about how this would form their foundation and give them the chance to be successful long-term, which it obviously did. And I saw them three times on their reunion tour in 07 and 08, and it wasn't cheap, but it was a lot of fun. It was cool to see them live. I'm just so glad I have the opportunity because when they broke up, I was like 11 and didn't really have a chance to go see them. Quickly, just a little bit of business. We already mentioned that we are proud members of the Pantheon Network, but we have to tell you, you've got to go visit our sponsor, rarevinyl.com. I've seen some great orders come through rarevinyl.com lately, guys, and that's great. It's a big help to us if you use the code UGLY when you check out, because not only will it save 10% to you, but it lets our sponsor know that it's worth sponsoring our podcast, and they will continue to sponsor us. 
And that is huge for us. And I know there are a lot of record collectors out there. You're looking for first edition stuff. You're looking for stuff in great shape. You're looking for hard to find stuff. You're looking for imports and stuff from around the world. No problem. RareVinyl.com has over a quarter of a million items in stock. They take great care to get it and get it to you in great shape. So go there, find something you love, and use Code Ugly. Now, you can only use it once. So don't just buy one $10 record. Go buy a bunch of stuff. Go buy something you've been looking for for a long time. Go use the excuse of the 10% off to save yourself all the shipping because they ship all over the world. It doesn't matter if you're in Montana or Mozambique. RareVinyl.com will ship it to you, and they're great folks. So visit RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY one time, and save yourself 10%. Record collectors, you got to use that for your police stuff or whatever it is you might be looking for. So 1978 was an interesting time. Music was changing. The big bands like the Led Zeppelins and the Aerosmiths, well, they're kind of starting to wind down a little bit. There's cracks coming through there, right? Bands like Genesis are starting to come up with new lineups. Punk is kind of the thing that everybody's into at this point. So here come the police on the scene. They're a little too old and smart to just be punks. They're too good at their instruments to just be three chords in a cloud of dust. So they meld some reggae along with some punk attitude, some good musicianship, some fine vocals, and amazing songwriting by Sting. And they come up with their own sound and a brilliant debut, which we're going to go through right now, track by track. It's Outlandos Demore by The Police here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So I was having a thought this morning when I was having my morning constitutional. All right. Why do you think it is we love rock and roll so much? Why do you think it's such a big passion of ours? I mean, outside of our families, wives, whatever, I would say it's our chief number one thing for each of us. How do you think we got here? Well, I think part of it is it allows you to feel certain ways. Like there are, there are thoughts in your head or there are emotions that you have that you can't really express and hear somebody doing it for you, number one. And number two, I think 
it also helps you when you feel a certain way that something goes along with you. Like you have this, this thing that helps you along or, you know, when you're feeling sad, Hey, someone else is feeling sad too. When you're feeling happy that there's a song for that. It's just a, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's just a companion as Getty Lee would say. Ah, gotcha. It's a very interesting theory. I probably right there. I do think that it doesn't even matter what music you're into that you connect emotionally with mm. music and a lot of it connects you back to a certain time in your life where you just kind of light up. Like when we hear stuff from the early MTV era, uh, uh, you know, when we were fairly little kids, but it's just starting to imprint on us, right? But then you also have stuff that maybe, you know, was big to you in high school or college because that's just a, a heady time in your life when you're, you know, you're going from being a boy to a man or, you know, you're starting to have some of the first emotions and first things go through your life. I don't know. And they, they say kind of like once you're about 30, that's like that's kind of it. Like your musical taste is formed. It's not like you won't find new songs or new bands or anything like that. But it's like by the time you're 30, it's pretty well formed. Mm. And I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. That's yeah, I don't know. I, I think that you can I think that you can you can keep developing and you can keep finding new things. And it, there are things to me like jazz. Like I never listened to jazz when I was a kid, sure. but now I can listen to it and appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. it, it'll never take the place of rock and roll, but it definitely, mm -hmm. I can definitely appreciate it more now than I did yeah. 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Like but, it has a role in your life now, or is it basically none 30 years ago? Yeah. Right. You know, the other thing too, about the, you know, you're talking about when you were a kid and imprinting and everything, music is a way for you to find common ground with people also. That's true. But, like even, you know, they were talking about uh, when Mick and Keith met, you know, Oh, Hey, what's up? Oh, Hey, what's up? Oh, hey, where'd you get those we, records? Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And so that was like, that was their bond. You know, you, you were saying something about yourself without saying anything, you know, th this is who I am. This is what I like. And yeah. you kind of form an opinion about a person based on their music taste. It's true. Musical taste. Yeah. Yeah. And the first day we met in August, I think it was maybe September, August, 1991. We start looking at each other's records like, oh, mm -hmm. this guy, this guy likes the cult, man. He must not be all bad. Well, you know, you say that, however, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you remember what you showed up with that first day, what T-shirts you were wearing. Oh, the Grateful Dead shirt. Right. And part <laughs> of me went, oh, boy, here we go. This this could be a little bit of a problem because I did not like listening to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was more into that shirt than I was into the band. Music, <laughs> that's for sure. Which I came to find out later, but I'm like, yeah. I can't, I can't listen to the 25 minute Eyes of the World right now. I know, I just can't. And I had kind of longish hair. I think I had an earring still. You know, I'm wearing the Grateful Dead shirt. He's like, oh no, not one of these, not one of these people. <laughs> but then within like a week, it was like it's too hot for this long hair, you know. And I'm I'm wearing my normal like polo shirts or whatever to class. And well, and by that point. The Jimmy Page poster had gone up, so yeah. everybody was on the. Uh, everybody knew what was going on at that point. We knew everything was all right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. I was I was watching Bill Burr the other day. He's like, so what happens is you you start having kids, and if you have three four kids, it takes like thirty years to get them from like the first ones born to the last ones out of college, right? And so you know <laughs> something at twenty five or thirty, and then you go into this like whole of like just kids and work and home kids and work and home that's all you do until they're done and it's like you come out of it like 
oh, whew, what happened? Where am I? You know, whew. you know, so it's like the world kind of passes you by. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, I think I'll go put on my old records. It's like, and I'm like, well, you know, we kind of had kids a little bit later in life. So we kind of kept the rock and roll thing going, but the police were huge to us. I mean, they were about, they weren't quite the first one because we didn't really see the police until synchronicity came out in 1983 Mm -hmm. by the time we were 10 and we were seeing men at work and Duran Duran and other people in 81 and 82. But I feel like 83, when you're 10, and I don't know if there's something magical about that number 10 being double digits or whatever, you know. Yeah, so I guess I guess it wasn't until, until I was in the fifth grade. But so having that impression, plus MTV, you get to see them now. You don't just hear stuff on the radio. So it's not just one sense that it's coming from. Suddenly mm-hmm. now, too, you can see them. And you can hear them. And when they're dancing, you, you can kind of hop up and dance a little bit, you know. And you see these young, well, Stuart and Sting were young. You see these young guys, uh, you know, with the blonde hair hopping around on TV. And it, it stimulates you in more ways than just the music does. And I think it also kind of forms, you know, your opinion about, you know, well, that it, when you're 10, it's kind of hard to figure that out. But like, you know, how you should dress and, you know, what, more about your the whole appearance once MTV came out, but it wasn't just a couple of photos on the gatefold and that was it. Like it, 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 it really propelled the, how you look was a lot of part of the band also. Absolutely. That's kind of what MTV was all about. I mean, yeah. people it, it, who it, weren't great, but they had this great look, they could get airtime. Right. But at the same time, if you like somebody like the police who had been around for what, what two, five or so years, yeah, all of a sudden they had to make the transition, which they did. But it, instead of being a band that started there, you had to say, okay, we have to incorporate these videos into our um, repertoire, right? And how and how they, you know, well, they, and you can tell the beginning ones, it was just you know a couple people up on stage, but now it has to be like this art piece, you know, we're going to film it in black and white, and the shadows are going to go all over the place and yeah i don't know i think some people did it well and some people they they did it because they had to the videos right yeah and i i feel like you can kind of get both of those here with the police on their first album because i you know the they made three videos for the three singles actually they technically made four because they made two for roxanne i never saw I guess you call it the original. The only one I ever saw was them in the red room, right? Yeah. Uh, Sting's sitting on the floor. He looks kind of pissed off. And then they're kind of, they're playing in the red room. But Sting's not really playing his bass. He's just kind of singing. Stuart doesn't have a microphone, so he's not singing. It's obviously a staged video. Turns out that they actually made a video that's more of a performance video. It, it's it's kind of clipped where, I mean, did you see this on, on YouTube? I saw something where it was like it was like a video thing where they it was it was like um, images that they put up. And oh. it was kind of like a swipe in between them. So I don't know what that was. Okay, well, and yeah, and who knows what that was? But they're, they're they made an official video that they could show on maybe Top of the Pops or what would eventually become MTV. Mm-hmm. That it's you know it's them lip syncing, you know, performance playing on like a soundstage and. Sting is playing the bass and Stewart is singing along in the background, but then they're splicing it with them playing live, you know? And so in 78, you know, they're playing a club and they're jumping up and down and stuff like that. And, and so they, they kind of splice that in between and they basically the, uh, the video for can't stand losing you 
which I also had never seen before I did this research for this show. It was basically the same thing. They, they're, yeah. they're, yeah, <laughs> I think they were done on different days, maybe, but like they kind of had a, a staged lip sync kind of performance thing. And then, uh, and Sting has these huge nerdy glasses on with yeah. a bow tie, um, just kind of singing along. But then they also splice in some clips of them playing live. So again, in '78, the, the the video format was not honed in yet. You know, there was no MTV. Maybe you could show it on a Top of the Pops or something like that, but it, it wasn't the professional thing that it would quickly become in the next few years. I think also it, those videos might have been used in like clubs. Like when you play the you play the track and then you have something up on the video screen for people to look at because yeah I, I don't know where else you would have used it yeah well yeah that's right you know uh, I mean maybe there were some video shows I don't I don't recall I don't recall anything from 1978 because I was like five uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think we had cable TV yet I mean I, think I know we, we didn't we got it in the early 80s because once MTV came out and Dad being in the t- television business it was kind of like well I need to be able to see what the competition is doing like whatever dude you just want to watch mtv yeah we had the same thing it was we moved in about 80 we moved in like 83 and Mm. where we were was kind of like a dead zone in connecticut where you couldn't really get new york channels you couldn't really get boston channels so i mean we had to get cable or you couldn't watch the news right yeah correct that's yeah it was kind of the same thing you just want to get this to say that you have cable all right well (laughs) that's pretty cool that's that's funny to know like oh no we're in this zone where we can't get we can't get tv over the air well i guess we just have to break down and get cable yeah nothing else we can do sorry did you get hbo uh not right off the bat but we did later because it was the same thing it was like well you know they have all these movies that they show you kind of have to get that too okay that's right that's (laughs) right and the boxes were so easy to tinker with he's like at first we didn't have everything but then we had our buddy come over he's like all you gotta do is like twist this or open it up and put this little thing in here and all of a sudden you get everything (laughs) i'll admit we stole some cable (laughs) <laughs> I think they were just fine without your nine ninety nine a month or whatever it was back then. Yeah, they had no knowledge. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's no way to tell. <laughs> but don't so steal I, out there, children. Correct, correct. So I do have to make a confession on this. All right. I, we started with synchronicity, like you said. And yep. when I first got into more of the expanded rock and roll universe, which was in high school, I really didn't like this, the rest of the police catalog, because it wasn't synchronicity. Oh, and I so see. yeah, it was. Oh, what is this? This is like you know, three chords and nothing else. And it was more you know hardcore. I have since come to love these records, but at the beginning, I was like, I'll just stick with synchronicity. All right, that's interesting. Yeah, and we obviously was listening to synchronicity back and forth on our Walkmans, mm-hmm. you know, a million times. But then at that time in like the eighth grade, when I'm starting to be like, okay, pop music isn't everything. You know, everything they show on MTV isn't for me. I got to start buying records that, you know, I'll want to have forever, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it will shape my musical taste. I'm like, I like the police, right? I like Sting's Dream of the Blue Turtles cassette. You know, I should probably go back in the police catalog. So the first one I bought non-synchronicity was Zenyatta Mondada because it had, you know, every little thing she does is magic on. I'm like, I know that song's good, so let's get that. And I, I just remember listening to it back to front. That was the middle album. That became that was before Ghost of the Machine, right? I'm pretty sure. Uh, Zenyatta Mondada. Yes, that was 1980. Yeah, yeah 80. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, this is pretty good. I didn't get Ghost of the Machine for a while, but I'm like, so I'm like, all right, Latter-day, quote unquote, police, right? From the third to fifth album, I'm, I'm digging that. 
but but you know, I, I never got into to the Outlandos de Boer, and from what I heard from some of it was it's 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 more of a punk album than what synchronicity really was. Correct. Yeah. But listening to it now, I think it's more of a reggae album than a punk album. And and I'm gonna tell you, I don't think it's either one of those things. I think that they try to they try to put them in a box, but it's not. It's kind of punk influenced and reggae influenced. Yeah, I think they're their own thing. I don't think anybody was playing like the the police. Like if you if you listen to other punk bands, like I don't know who's say the Ramones would be the big mm, punk the band American from the United States. Yeah, from yeah. the Americas. It doesn't sound anything like that. I mean, there's there's. I mean, I love the Ramones, but I that's mean, they, for sure. It's it's <laughs> yeah, it's real straight ahead. This is nothing like that well they were just they were too good of musicians to just be straight punks right my, my whole problem with punk my whole life has been they can't really play i mean you know they don't i mean you know right. it's like versus iron maiden or metal bands that were coming out of that time iron maiden are like olympic athletes at their instruments compared to like the clash you know and Correct. the clash were the class of the bunch really you know but, but yeah you mentioned the ramones or you know folks like that or the slits or you know you know people like that it's like yeah these th- those people can't play and as we talk about bands where are they coming from you know we look at these guys sting was a school teacher but a burgeoning songwriter in a band up north i think called last exit i'm not 100 percent on that but i think it was called yeah. last exit yes that is correct Stewart, whose father was a CIA operative who helped found the CIA and did some eh, some interesting things in his life. <laughs> Apparently, his books are fascinating. If you know, if I could read something besides rock and roll, I would probably want to read Miles Copeland Jr.'s books. So he lived in Lebanon and stuff like that. He grew up outside of D.C. and then you know lived in London for a while. He was in a band called Curved Air for a while, which had existed before him, but he came in for a couple years with them. He even did some odd solo songs under the name Clark Kent with two Ks. Um, (laughs) Of course, Andy Summers is like 10 years older than those two. And he was more of like a contemporary of like Jimmy Pages and had done studio work. He was in the Eric Burden in the animals after Eric kind of ditched the other guys and just kind of said, I'll carry on doing those songs and I'll put together a new band kind of thing. So he was with them. Then he moved to California for a number of years. And I think we went to uh, CSU Northridge to, to do like more studying of his guitar, which is kind of interesting. Met an American girl and then moved back to England uh, with her and kind of started a family. And then, uh, and then they all were kind of doing some session work or whatever. And I guess it was Summers who said to Copeland, hey, that, that bass player you're with, you two got something going on, but what you need is me. <laughs> and I accept your offer. <laughs> Which is probably weird for Stuart because he's like 23 and he's smart like his dad. I mean, he he's a pretty bright guy, this this Stuart Copeland. He's also kind of a pain in the ass, if you ask Sting. But, uh, but he is smart. And so he's like, why does this guy who's 10 years older than us, who's in the animals, right? Who's a top-notch session player. You know, there's different levels of session players. Summers was top-notch. He gets good fees. You can earn a good living being a session guy. And so he's like, why would he want to give up that to go play like punk clubs with two guys, you know, less than half his adult age, you know, 10 years younger in a big way. But that's because he saw something in them and he was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think he, I think he had probably spent a lot of time in bands that, I mean, the animals kind of had already made it, but right after they left, you know, he was kind of in the remnants of that. 
you know, he, I, he you, you're right. He saw something there that they could really be big. And at that point in time, he knew that's what he really wanted. I mean, session is fun, but I mean, you're never going to get famous playing session stuff. Right. And you can earn a good living, but you mm-hmm. won't get richy rich. Right. Right. So, and it's interesting too, because you, he, it's the, he's a lot of times I think he was the glue that held the two of them together. And you can yeah. see in interviews when they start. They, they, you will never. I don't think you're ever going to see Copeland and Sting sitting next to each other, and you can tell like they just start picking at each other. And Summers just has this look on his face like we're not doing this now. Right, everybody, calm down. Children, I stop it. Yeah, I, I will pull they, this car over. <laughs> I guess that's really what it was. It was more like they were all brothers, and they would go at it with each other, like physically, yep. like beat the shit out of each other on the tour bus or behind stage. There, there was a clip of the three of them getting ready to go on stage and Summers, you know, says, you know, Sting, when you when you play this part, maybe you could hit the harmonic and then I'll come in like that. And, and Sting's just like, why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> yeah, like we're playing it the way, you know, the way this is going to go. So it, I think that they, it, it's a miracle they ever got anything out because they were just... They were three dudes who weren't really going to let anybody, even though Sting was the one who wrote the music. Right. They weren't going to just say, oh, okay, well, you, whatever you say, we'll just do. And and to your point before, Copeland is, he's he's smart. He's too smart to be a regular drummer. Right. And he's not going to, he, he's going to do whatever he wants. If he wants to do it, he's throwing it in there. I don't care what you say. Yeah. You know, and he helped kind of invent like a little splash symbol, you know, based on like a toy he used to have, you know, and you can see it in the videos. He's got this like, what's that funny little thing he's got there? But <laughs> He uses it, and he the way he swings his arms, the way he fits these little beats in there, it's unusual. Uh, it's it's not everyone can do that. And again, a punk who's just like four on the floor, Stuart Copeland is miles ahead of somebody like that. You know, correct, correct, yeah. and and just a, a huge part of the police sound that you're Absolutely. not going to get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, and totally influenced people like Neil Peart. I think they became very good friends, but at first they kind of had a mutual admiration society for each other. And and you can hear it, you know, when they do a little reggae in uh, their late seventies and and early eighties albums, fit it into some songs. You're like uh, the little reggae break and concert hall before that. He totally picked that up from Stuart Copeland and the police. Interesting. When you see people who are that on that, in that rarefied air where Mm -hmm. they, you know, you can still say, Hey, I like, I really enjoy the way somebody else plays. I, I'd never thought about doing that before. And maybe I'll incorporate that into my thing. Yeah. It's game recognizes game. Yeah. Correct. Basically. So, all right. So on the strength of Roxanne, which is a single that was released in like April of 78, I think they get a record contract and then they release Atlando's Jamor in, uh, was it November of, of 78. So April 78, Roxanne comes out. I don't think it runs up the charts. And what's interesting is all three of their singles from this album were released twice. They would get released. They would go nowhere. Maybe they start some controversy <laughs> or something. So then later they get re-released and then they go up the chart. Mm. Kind of, And sometimes that was about uh, record covers or whatever, but we'll, we'll get into all that. So strange out of the gate. But here's the thing. It's like punk was big, but it was also by British society or by the British powers that be like the BBC. It was like, Ugh, you know, we don't need this. And, you know, mm. the God Save the Queen song by the Sex Pistols got banned. You know, and then 
What are their first two singles about? Well, the first one, Roxanne, is about prostitution. And the second one, Can't Stand Losing You, is about suicide. Well, they're probably not going to rush to play those (laughs) kinds of songs on BBC One, right? So even though musically they were above the punks, they were still in that generation. They were still playing those kind of gigs and halls and, and, and places where they would let them play that stuff. But musically and lyrically, they were definitely a step above. And, and that's what people had to kind of come realize eventually. Mm. And then you kind of have that fourth piece to the band uh, with Miles Copeland being mm-hmm. the Miles the third. Miles the third, correct, yeah. being the the manager, mm-hmm. and it was I guess it was kind of a weird deal because he managed it. He was doing this before the police ever came along, and there was a thing about how I guess he really kind of didn't pay Stewart a whole bunch of attention because he didn't want to be accused of nepotism. Mm-hmm. But I guess he heard Roxanne and was like, "No, these guys they have something. This is a real deal. I can I can bring this to a record company and get this released." And they were selling like forty five records Stewart was kind of doing it from his house and actually they were doing all right with it you know like mm-hmm. he, he he savvy business guy he was figuring out how to get in touch with you know record stores and radio stations and get stuff played and, and get so they weren't they weren't making a mint but they were making money selling their own 45s so it's like okay it's it's going in the right direction and so and, and even with that Clark Kent silliness even that worked to some degree for him <laughs> but once this happens you know suddenly still Things like, okay, now I got two of these Copelands to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, but they're my songs. Our buddy Paul Stevenson, who does the brilliant vintage rock pod, had Stuart Copeland on after the Taylor Hawkins tribute that he was a part of. And basically, I mean, and it was a brilliant, it's a brilliant interview and, and anyone should check that out who hasn't heard that. But he's like, Stingo basically sees himself as a songwriter of all the brilliant things that he can do, that's the way he sees himself. And guess what? He's right. He (laughs) can write an incredible song. And like this first out of the gate, these 10 songs wrote them all. There are a couple of co-writes that we'll, we'll talk about, I guess, once we get track by track here, but sting knows what he's doing when he puts together, not only the sound, but the, uh, the lyrics can be pretty poignant for, you know, a a fairly young man. I mean, here's the thing. Most punks are probably like, teenagers or maybe 20 years old when they're getting their first record sting and stewart were like mid-20s 25 26 something like that 24 to 26 and then andy's up there like 35 or something like that so they're a little more experienced but sting's had a little bit of life experience now that he can write songs that aren't just like hate my parents you know uh, you know don't have a money don't have a job uh, let's start a fight he can do a little bit more than that and obviously throughout his career we've seen what he can do and it's interesting too because the um outlando's demore it doesn't really mean anything but it kind of it roughly translates to like outlaws of love Mm -hmm. and that's to me that's a theme that runs through this whole record is it's a it's a punk it's reggae but it's really more about more about love lost i guess well and apparently those first few albums were all miles he's like miles would come up with these names like alandos de Moore and regatta de blanc and you know ziyana mandata they you know ridiculous stuff that you know i don't think anybody really got but that's also part of punk too. It's like you don't get it fine you know kind of thing well and it adds to the mystique like what does that mean i don't know what do you think it means it's just something interesting to you know topic an interesting thing because i mean back then 
what, what did they say? This was like fifteen hundred quid. They they made this on. Oh my god! So you didn't have a marketing budget or anything else. Anything that you can do to generate buzz for this, yeah, up to and including you know odd names for the records. It's just something for people to talk about. How can yeah. I promote this without spending money? Like regatta de blanc. Well, isn't that like the white regatta? Like, <laughs> aren't all regattas pretty white? You know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Can't you just call it the regatta? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul Stevenson from Vintage Rock Pod, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, well, let's let's start going track by track here because there's a lot on here. And when they did their famous reunion tour, and was at 2007, 2008, they regularly played half of these songs on that tour and and all but about one of them they played a lot in the first you know couple few years that they were a touring act so let's go ahead and jump in here we start off with next to you now this is a fast driving one of the more punkish songs as far as the beat and the drive goes and the way he's kind of screaming along at some point it's a pretty good way to start off this album Yeah, they've got a, uh, there's one of the live records. This is the last song on it, I think. So all every time I hear this, I always, hell, good night. You know, we love you, New York. Good night. And then they play this. Yeah, <clears throat> this is one that uh, you're going to jump around to. And, you know, being a teenager, that's what you want. All I want is to get next to you. I mean, that's it. You see this person who you're infatuated with and get, you kind of get caught up in it. And... Yeah, just a just a good one to you're talking about playing live. Mm -hmm. These are really easy to play live. There's not a whole bunch of other stuff in it. There's no, you know, synths or anything else. It's just the bass, the guitar and the and the drums. So, yeah, it, it lends itself to playing live. Yeah, it really is just the three of them. I mean, I think, I think when they finally did the Synchronicity Tour, they did have some backup singers. But, you know, otherwise, up until that, it's just if the three of them can't make the noise and it's not coming out on stage. I, I tell you, one thing that's odd, though, is Andy has this kind of funky, slowed down solo that almost sounds like a little like a, a train like slide on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Andy is an odd guitar player to me at least in the police because he's obviously talented he's obviously been around the block and can play all sorts of things but some of the stuff he plays is weird and it's not just like a like a jimmy page 
blues-based solo. And I don't know, it, 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 it doesn't just go, no, 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 no. It's like, he can stretch some yeah, stuff out. Yeah, he kind of stretches yeah. it out, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it works. It doesn't sound like it would, but it works. And that's why it's kind of like, I've got a note here that says punk question mark kind of <laughs> I mean it's not they I mean they kind of they kind of start off one way and then they and then they go into their own thing and yeah that solo does not it works but it sounds very bizarre in the context of the song yeah I know and that's why I called it punk ish because it's not yeah. quite punk it's punk adjacent yeah it's it's like punk yeah yeah but I but I think if you to your point before when you were talking about uh summers and, and what he's playing it's not it's not super flashy but when you get into it like somebody was talking about every breath you take it's the chords but if you actually sit down and try and play it it's really hard to get your hand in those positions like he doesn't it sounds easy, but it's not easy to play. And apparently, he recorded that in one go on the Synchronicity Sessions, and uh, he wrote that, and he didn't get credit for it, and that's costing him millions of dollars. But on the tour, and I saw the reunion tour three times. I saw them mm-hmm. in Oakland where the A's play, or where it'll soon be where they used to play, from what I understand. Uh, where the Raiders used to play, big baseball, football stadium. We saw them at the Pepsi Center in Denver, which I guess is where the Nuggets just won their first championship, and then saw them at Churchill Downs outside. And their second encore is Every Breath You Take, obviously. You think they'd finish with that, but they don't want to finish on like a mellow note. So the last song mm-hmm. they would play every night was Next to You. It's how they finished every night on that tour, or at least yeah. at least on that leg of the tour, yeah. And the, and I, and I, well, I like that too that that they can still go back to. A lot of times, like the the first album is like, well, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. We tried, but you know, we kind of leave that one behind. This one is still definitely a part of their catalog, and and who knows, maybe it's it's a fact of they were older when they put this together, so mm-hmm. they had a little more. This was a little more polished than most people's first one out of the gate. Yeah, I think you're right there, and they obviously still mean something to. Them them and it, mm. I, they probably recall god we were real brothers there, like living in each other's pockets you know on the bus <laughs> that kind of thing because four of the last six songs of their set were from that first album huh okay yeah can't stand losing you roxanne so lonely and next to you were four of the last six songs they would play every night so pretty big all right let's get to the second song so lonely when did you first come to know so lonely because i feel like i never heard this when we were little kids no, never. I mean, that that's a good question. It was either high school or college. Yeah, I, it, it's one of those like, well, how did I miss this? I hear you. So for me, it was much later. The police put out a live police live album like in the 90s, long after they'd broken up, long after they did the um, the police box set that pretty much had mm-hmm. everything in it. Which I went and in the heady days of Napster, I went and downloaded <laughs> all four discs because it was everything they'd ever done. It was all their albums, all their B-sides, everything, you know. So, yeah. you know, I wanted to have that and I, I played those a lot. And then eventually once I found Police Live, it was two disc thing. One was like from a club in like Boston, you know, like in the late 70s. And then I think another one was from the Synchronicity Tour. So you're getting two pretty different shows. But I play so lonely on there. So I here I am in like my late 20s hearing this for the first time and you know live it can be a little funkier they can stretch it out a little bit more they can you know in the middle they slow it down and then they can build it back up to the crescendo i love this song this is my favorite police song 
easily. Okay. It eclipses everything on Synchronicity, it, 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 everything of their greatest hits album. Because this was not on the singles, right? No. Every, yeah. every, every album all. except Synchronicity had two songs off it, and then Synchronicity had three. And so I never had this record. They didn't play it on MTV, uh, So Lonely. And then once the singles came out, which is like 86, which had the reworked every uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me, rather. That's what I knew of the police. So then they play a So Lonely song. I'm like, this is amazing. This is the best song they ever did, kind of easily, to me. I, I think it's amazing. And when they do it live, when they take it down low, you get low, and then they build it back up. And you build it, build it, build it, build it. And by the end, you're going, ah, so lonely, lonely. <laughs> and that's the funny thing about it, because you're singing about being lonely, which is usually people like, oh, I don't think I want to go outside today. But this was like, lonely, lonely. Like you're hopping around, you're bumping into people, you're jumping up and down, and you're basically screaming about being lonely. So it's it's kind right. of a funny dichotomy there. <laughs> And I guess it, you, the closest thing that you could say is this is reggae again influenced, so Definitely. reggae adjacent. But it doesn't like if you listen to reggae songs, they kind of go the whole song or the whole track in one style. It's mostly it's a lot to it's a lot for the, or it's more for the um, singer to put the lyrics in. This is not the case. Like it it changes up, and you're right. You're it, it's fast pace, but you're singing about being so lonely. Exactly, okay, that's strange. <laughs> And then when you add in the video to this, where they're on the train in Tokyo and they're mm -hmm. just fooling around and, you know, th there's uh, Stuart Copeland is playing the drums everywhere and the little guy comes out and, and he's like, runs him know. off, like, get out of here. Yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. And then he just starts on something else. So like, they're just kind of fooling around with the, with the uh, radios in their ears. And it just, it doesn't go together. It doesn't, but it works, but it doesn't go together. I know. I know. And it, you know, it, it was, uh, it was the third single off first release. Didn't go anywhere. Second release. It got up to number six in the UK. And I think even up to number seven in Ireland, but it never charted in the U S and I swear, I never heard it on the radio growing up. Not even once. Yeah. It was back with no time this time, which ended up going on regatta de Blanc, like the exact same song. They didn't even like rework it or anything like that. And sting kind of admitted that he ripped off no woman, no cry from Bob Marley. He, he, you know, he's been admitted that from years. And last year when I saw him at one of his palladium shows that we did a, we did an episode on last year. Mm -hmm. It was like, you saw the Colt and I saw sting. So we did kind of a double right. live show. He worked in a little bit of the lyrics of no woman, don't cry <laughs> when he did, when he did this live. So I'm like, well, at least he admits it, you know, and he kind of yeah. owns up to it kind of thing. But yeah, them on their walkie talkies in the subway, that's like the Japanese subway. But then when they're out in the market, they're actually in Hong Kong. I'm like, they went and played oh, okay. Hong Kong. Are you kidding me? But that's probably, you know, the Copeland brothers being these international, you know, kids who've grown up all around the world and through their dad probably had contacts everywhere. The other thing I like about this too, is that, so the, the solo starts mm -hmm. and then about halfway through the bass kind of picks up to double time. Yes. So it kind of, it kind of builds and then they throw in the harmonica. 
which is an interesting touch. But yeah, it just it kind of chugs along, and then again, we're just all of a sudden we're yelling and really happy about being so lonely. Yeah, and all the guys because I went with different crews to every single police show that I went to, mm-hmm. and every time I'm like, "What was your favorite part?" And they're like. It was so lonely. I'm like, yeah, I know it was. I know it was, you know, because, I mean, look, every breath you take is an amazing song, huge hit, but it's also very mellow. You're not hopping up and down to that. Maybe you're squeezing your sweetie a little tighter during that, even though it's about possession and not about love and stuff. But still, (laughs) you know, that's the emotion that it brings out in you. But when you're doing so lonely and you're jumping up and down, you can't help yourself. Now, here's the thing. They they shortened the song because it's almost five minutes. It's about... It's almost the longest song on the record. Most of these like three minute punkish songs, but they took out the slowdown and the crescendo build out in the video and they kept it a little shorter there. And then when they walk out at the end of the video, they, they kind of walk off the subway. And then I think that's Miles walking right behind him. I could be wrong okay. about that, but that was not, Maybe. that was not a Japanese person walking out. That was, a, <laughs> that was a tall blonde haired person. Another interesting part I had no idea about. There's a programmer or a broadcaster in British culture, maybe on the BBC or something like that, called Sue Lawley. And if you just listen to it quickly, you might think they're saying, Sue Lawley, Sue Lawley. <laughs> like they're singing a song about this woman on the TV or something like that. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't have any knowledge of that. <laughs> but I think this is an amazing song. I, it's so good. It's got all these cool reggae elements, punkish elements, heartfelt lyrics. Mm-hmm. And yet the dichotomy of you're talking about being lonely and it's a pure all out rocker at the end. I love it. I, I, when it comes on, the volume goes straight up, man. It's, <laughs> I, I love it. All right. Well, let's get on to song number three. And that's Roxanne, the big one, right? This is the one they played at the Grammys to kind of announce we're back together and we're going to do mm-hmm. a half a billion dollar tour together around the world in 15 or 16 months. I remember seeing this on MTV back in the day. It wasn't in heavy rotation, but you would see the red, the red room video. You would see that once in a while. I can't remember if I ever remember seeing that. I do remember hearing it on the radio, mm-hmm. but I don't remember. I don't remember ever seeing the video. Okay, but this this was a hard one for this show because I've heard it so many times that mm-hmm. you know you're kind of like, eh, and it's. It's hard, too, because I always think of Eddie Murphy screaming at the top of his lungs right. from 48 hours. So good. He, he made it okay, too, for anybody to just wail along with the uh, the chorus. I really like how it starts with the chords and then Copeland goes, he does the two note change, boom, boom, and then into the, into the actual lyrics. Yeah. is good here's the thing in the red room i feel like his kit's a little smaller versus like on stage i feel like it's a little bit bigger also note that i learned he's left-handed but he plays drums right he's like he has the right-handed setup apparently okay Uh, you know 
it doesn't mean anything to me. I can't play the drums. But well, but it but it kind of does because I, I I know Ringo was probably the the most famous left-handed to play the right-handed drums, and it's it's yeah. I don't know if it's a if it's a red badge of courage or how that works out because really it's just like a guitar. Like you'd have to string it upside down, right? If you wanted to make it left-handed, but right. the drum kit you could just move the drums around. But if you don't do that. Maybe it's because that's just the way that you learned it, and you're always going to be off a little bit. Gotcha. All right. You just play it a little differently. So, I I mean, obviously, he doesn't have a problem with it. Right, right. And the song is iconic for them. Mm -hmm. Their first real... Well, I don't know if it was their first single, but it was was certainly the first single that that got some attention. And on on second issue, you know, it went to number 12 in the UK, got in the top 40 in the US, and they did tour the US and Canada. I mean, look, this album went platinum US, platinum UK, platinum Canada, platinum a few other places like Australia, I think France, you know, so uh, maybe the Netherlands. So, you know, these songs and then them getting out and touring, you know, helped create some buzz around them. I learned that uh, Sting... In the Red Room video, he was pretty hungover that morning. <laughs> and apparently he, quote, didn't feel like being looked at. So there's basically three scenes in that video. There's Sting, Sting sitting on the floor with his bass next to him, just him scowling into the microphone, you know, because he's hungover and he's not in the mood. Then there's the three of them lip syncing, playing their instruments, even though Sting's just got his bass around his neck. He's not doing anything with it. And then there's the three of them bopping around together with sunglasses on, singing into microphones, singing the backup. Now, I'm pretty sure that's also Sting singing backup on the record. I think... Pretty probably, yeah. yeah. That, that would be my guess. Yeah, they just mix his vocals in with... Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how much Copeland sings, but I think I think Summers was the big second part. Right. And, and again, on the performance video that spliced in between them like on a sound stage and real live performing copeland's got the microphone in his face to say roxanne but mm-hmm. on the red one he doesn't even have a microphone and he's not even trying to sing along i just thought that was interesting <laughs> yeah who i mean who knows what on the mix there but what i want to know is apparently miles copeland didn't like any of the songs they thought they were all trash until he heard roxanne ah. so but when you listen to the rest of this record, like what what was he listening to? Because the rest of this sounds pretty good, but I don't know. I guess he was just looking for a single. I guess that's the difference between the the artist and the, the and the management. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All I'm hearing is what can I put on the radio and make money? What can I take to the record company and say I can sell this? Right, and that they did have that long before the record came out. So maybe they didn't have all of these songs mm-hmm. when Miles was like, "Yeah, I don't hear it." It's like Roxanne. Ooh, okay, there's mm-hmm. one. Now we need to go get you some more, kind of thing. But people love this song and put on the red light and Roxanne. I'm glad you mentioned the Eddie Murphy thing. You can't, you can't tell me there that when this song comes on, especially if you're in the car by yourself, you are not screaming along like that. Exactly. Absolutely am. (laughs) So now we get into a little bit of a game changer in Hole in My Life. It's a little slower. I mean, look, next to you, straight ahead, punkish rocker, Roxanne, builds to a crescendo, as does So Lonely. Hole in My Life, it's a little different. And I feel like this one is more about crowd participation, like doing, yeah, 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 and trying to get the crowd into it. Yeah, you know, more like that. So we do slow it down a little bit, but it's got more of a fast reggae strum from summers on it so again there's a little dichotomy there it's a slower song and yet summers is still strumming pretty quick 
Yeah, and, and it's, it's kind of weird. Like I don't, I don't know what the chord structure is, but it sounds off a little bit. Like it's, it's uh, like a minor key that he's strumming in. And then one of the notes that I had was Copeland is playing slower, but he's playing really hard. Like he's hitting the drums super hard. Mm-hmm. And then you know, it's a good part of the album, but like there's so much else going on in this. You know, and I know this song, and I've been singing it, you know, ever since I downloaded all their stuff. By the way, folks, I don't just steal stuff. You know, I did <laughs> eventually, you know, I, they made this box set, Every Breath You Take, which has all five albums on it. Plus, then it has a CD, a six CD called Flexible Strategies, where you get like the B sides, like Dead End Job, you know, Landlord, Visions of the Night, and, and you know, on and on here and some re- remixes um, like they have a truth it's everybody remix on there so i didn't just steal on Napster. and in fact most of the bands that i stole a bunch of stuff from i then went out and bought over the next couple decades <laughs> many of their albums lots of the reissues and like the police i went to see them three times that was fucking expensive okay trust me <laughs> trust me all right Hole in My Life, it's not one that I would skip. It's a little bit of a game changer. I think live, it's a little bit better than it is on the album, but it's not my favorite. Yeah, I would say I would say the same thing. Yeah, it, it, it's not a skip track, but it definitely is. It's a it's a change up and it's different. And I, I I really not heard it a ton before we started doing the doing this one. But again, Hole in My Life, what is that? Are we talking about you know what are we missing? Is this a is this another love song or what are we doing? I think it is. I think it's like you're not here anymore, and so now I got a hole in my life kind of thing. Yeah. But let's move on to the final right. track on the first side of the record or the tape, Peanuts. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the one Stuart Copeland co-write on the on the album, and like mm-hmm. most of Stuart's songs, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's a little weird, okay? You get some a noisy guitar solo from Andy is the best way I could describe it it's almost like especially at the end of the solo it's almost like a little punk dick dale surfer thing almost at the okay v- at the very okay. end yeah yeah and and there's something on there too i it, i don't know what it is i couldn't see anybody credited with anything different is it a clarinet is it a yeah i said some it, kind of electronic i said is it a horn thing i, I think it's some kind of synth thing that that andy put in there somehow um, um yeah. but i'm not exactly sure what it is but my note is, what is that horn thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then what? What is this? What's this song about? Well, apparently, it's about Rod Stewart. Mm-hmm. And but but it's weird because like peanuts. It's like I was listening to it with the Wolf Cubs. She's like, this is the weirdest song I've ever heard. You know? <laughs> yeah, because it like you look at the title and you're like, like the cartoon. Like, what are we talking about? I know. And then and then when you listen to the when you listen to the lyrics, even though this one's kind of hard because he's yelling them pretty fast. Mm-hmm. You know, is it? You know, I don't care about you know you being rich or whatever. Yeah. And so don't want to be yeah, famous. It, don't want to be a millionaire yeah. kind of thing. Except for like, didn't you? Then later do a song with Sting and Brian a- and I'm not Sting, uh, uh, Stuart and uh, Brian Adams for that stupid Johnny Depp movie. Robin Hood movie. Or, or was a Robin Hood movie? Yeah, okay. I think it, yeah, one of those things. 
So like you kind of changed your tune. I wonder if once you started to get rich and famous and you started to maybe become Rod Stewart, were you like, oh, you know what? I don't think he's all that bad. I think he's okay. But in 1978, you're like a tool bag. You sold out. Well, that's exactly what happened apparently because it's like, yeah, I saw Rod and he was a good dude, you know, coming up and then eventually he became something else and he did disco. And if you're in a punk or punkish band and you hear somebody doing, if you think I'm sexy, you know, it's like, okay, he sold out. He's just about right. money. But he said, honestly, later in life, he was like, I don't even recognize those lyrics or what that song's about. And I don't relate <laughs> to it anymore. I'm like, yeah, it's because you realized it's not about sticking to your guns. It's it's about evolving. <laughs> it's about changing over time. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, once you're huge, you kind of want to stay that way. <laughs> And sometimes you do things that you do at 35 that you wouldn't do at 25. And, right, and Sting right. kind of figured that out, I think, you know, yeah. But, you know, I hope we can get Jim Cregan on sometime to say, what did Rod Stewart think about Stingo back in the 70s, you know? I mean, it, it, who knows? And, and, and talking to Jim, you know, kind of at the end of our conversation, like, I can't imagine anybody saying a bad thing about Rod Stewart because he just sounds like the coolest guy on the face of the earth, the most, you know, happy-go-lucky person. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing. You want to pay me a lot of money to do disco? Okay, let's go. <laughs> sure, yeah. 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 Chicks dig it, even better. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go be a sweaty punk in, you know, like a hall of that holds 200, there's 400 people in there, and I'll I'll just go to my arenas and jump on my Correct. plane with my models, and you just tell me how <laughs> that goes for you. <laughs> Yeah, because they were saying that with this tour, I guess they came over uh, to the United States and they it was like literally they would make just enough money to get in the van, eat, and then go to the next yeah, gig. Pretty like much. It was, there was nothing happening on this one. But that's how you build it. That's how you get out there and get the Correct. people to know who you are. You talk to the DJs, you get them to spin your records, and you start to build a following that way. And they did it. And you think about the meteoric rise in the summer of 78 – no one in America basically knew who they were in the right. summer of 83, five years later, they're the biggest band in the world, you know, selling tens of millions of records and, and doing the biggest tour and all over MTV. That's meteoric, man. I mean, that's, mm. that's, that's crazy fast. And not to mention, you know, four albums in between and all the tours. No wonder they burned out. No wonder they got sick yeah. of each other, dude. Well, and, and then you add in the dynamic of, you know, the three of them not wanting to, not wanting to follow orders. Mm-hmm. I can't, yeah, I can't imagine what that was like. I mean, just literally every day was like, okay, how it's going to go bad today. Just how bad they had to record in different rooms. They couldn't all be together. Yeah. There was a, there was a story about how when they've played the old gray whistle or something way back in the day, there mm-hmm. was a can of something like a hairspray and sting got it in his face. And he's like, I can't see. I can't, I, we've got to go on stage in like five minutes and I cannot see anything. So he says, and he's telling the story probably in like, you know, the late eighties, like after they had already broken up and he's like, so I I, I talked to Andy Summers and, you know, not Andy, but uh, Stuart, Hey Stuart, you got those sunglasses, you know, give me the, give me the sunglasses. I'll put them on stage. And his head is like really big. Like he's got a really big head. So they wouldn't really fit on me. And I'm like, you didn't really have to put that in. Did you? That was just a dig. (laughs) That was just, you just wanted to dig at him a little bit. It's been, you know, 10 years now and you still just want to turn that screw. And yeah. so, and who, yeah, who, I, I who has the big head sting? Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. Yeah. And I mean, they, they look like they fit just fine in the, uh, yeah. in the clip. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 
Hi, this is Jim Cregan, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. And they're just the best. All right, well, that's that's side one of Outlandos to More, the incredible debut by the police. Starting off side two, we always talk about, all right, come out on side two. What are you starting with? Can't Stand Losing You, the second single off of the record, you know? And uh, apparently it had a pretty controversial cover, its first cover, and I would love to get my hands on one of these. It was like Stuart has got a noose around his neck and he's standing oh, on geez. he's standing on a block of ice that is of course melting or whatever because it is about suicide right it basically mm-hmm. about a teenager who lost his girlfriend and now he's going to kill himself which stink kind of poo-poos is oh all teenage suicide is a bit of a joke isn't i'm like well <laughs> not really <laughs> You know, it's actually pretty horrible when the teenager throws their life away. It's like, because they can't realize this is just a small part of your life and things can get a lot better. You just kind of have to get through this bumpy thing here. But obviously they played this on the radio and it was on the singles. So heard Mm. this a thousand times. But again, this is a song about being sad, about losing a a relationship and want and thinking horrible things, but yet it's an upbeat track. And you know, you've got people, you know, yelling along, can't stand losing, I can't you know, it's not it's not a, it's a sad song, but not a sad beat. Right. And then he's got the driving bass on it, you know, you can't really yeah. sit still to that you know. Again, I never saw the video until we did this, much like the Roxanne video that I had never seen. Uh, was staying in his big nerd glasses and bow tie. Yeah, but, and interesting too because because uh, Summers is playing a Gibson Explorer in this one. Yeah, I've never seen him play anything else except for a. He's a big Telecaster fan. That's right. So to see him play that, is that even your guitar? Or was that laying around? Like I've never seen him play that. Well, was that a, a was it a Gibson? I mean, I know it looked like a, an Explorer. It it looked like it. So I don't I don't know what it was, but it yeah. was modeled after. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, you're right about that. Dead End Job was the B-side. And and it was it was again that was a Stuart Copeland co-write. So this is this is a little thing here that we kind of have to talk about. So the obviously the big hits are written by Sting, but the B-sides to their first singles there are co-written by Stuart Copeland. So now Stuart even though he's not a great songwriter, he's weaseling into 25% of the profits of, of the, the singles, of the singles. Right. Uh, and this yeah, is something, uh-huh. and, and, you know, did miles have something to do with that? It's like, okay, well I can help my brother get a little money because, okay. Peanuts. Yeah. This song sucks. Okay. Well, we'll put that on the, on the B side of Roxanne, uh, you know, dead end job, not good enough for the album. Okay. We'll put that on the B side. I can't stand losing you. And it's thing like, is this, you know, part of Sting going, <laughs> all right, these Copelands are coming after my money. I don't know about this, you know, kind yeah, of thing. I, yeah. Who knows? And again, 
They released it the first time. It doesn't do much. They get a second cover for it. They re-release it. And it goes to number two in the UK. Only held out of the number one spot by I Don't Like Mondays by Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats. Ah, the Boomtown Rats, yes. But if it hadn't gone to number one, there might not have been a Live Aid. So, you know, Sting, you don't need another number one single. Just be happy with your number two. <laughs> Did not chart in the US. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if that had something to do with the subject matter. Probably so. Probably yeah. so. Yeah. It, you know, especially, you know, you think of the South or you say, well, what's the song about? It's about teenage suicide. Yeah. We're not playing that. Yeah. And yeah. And that's going right in the trash. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, I always like this one. Yeah. No doubt about it. It's a classic. It's a classic police song. Mm-hmm. Then comes Truth Hits Everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, this is upbeat, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you think of the subject matter, uh, eventually you come to realize you're not that great or, you know, whatever story you're trying to tell about yourself, whatever narrative you have, eventually the truth comes in and hits you right in the face. Right. Right. And, and, and this is one of those album tracks that you're not, I've, I'd never heard it before. And then now all of a sudden, four hours later, I'm still truth. It's, everybody. Whoa. It gets, it, it's in your ear. It's it where it's the earworm. Yeah. I love this song. Me too. This is there's it's, it's straight ahead it's a it's punk but not really i mean this is more of a rocker yeah copeland is just killing it on the drums, killing it and so good on this song yeah and and it's just yeah it it just over and over and then the bells at the end that add something to it i love this song I do too, you know, and they played this every night on the tour of, of the reunion uh, it, tour. Well, I'm sure this was smoking, and then but then you kind of get into like, what's he, what's what's he talking about here? Yeah, I yeah, well yeah, I mean that's the thing about Sting. He's smart, so he's writing some stuff about that, that you got to think about a little bit. But you can, but he, everyone he, can cheer along to "Truth It's Everybody." Yeah. But then it's like, take a look at my new toy. It'll blow your head in two. Oh boy. I mean, are we talking like, is this like drugs or what are we doing? Like there was, there was some mention about a poem or a short story. Truth kills everyone by mm. Ted Hughes. Okay. I have no idea. I couldn't find really anything about that, but you know, you kind of think about, well, maybe, yeah, maybe it is, you know, discovering some kind of drug. I don't know whether it's marijuana, LSD, something like that. And it's just like, oh boy, this is, this is fun to play with. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> but so that's five songs off a 10 song record. And, you know, out of their catalog of about 50 or so songs, you know, they're, they're playing on that tour. They also do five songs from Synchronicity, which you would expect not only because it was huge worldwide sensation, but it was also the last album that they did. Their most recent, mm-hmm. if you will, even though it was 25 years before their most recent album. So that means they yeah. had to split the other 10 songs between uh, the other three records. But yeah, I, I, I love this one. And live was fantastic. And you're right. Stewart is, is out of his mind. Good on this one. I, I think it's awesome yeah all right so that's the second song so they're not slowing down yet here on the second side until you get to born in the 50s 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this one? Well, the first part of it, it's it's interesting. We were born in the 50s. We, we were all born in the 50s. <laughs> right. Just some of us were born in the 50s. Exactly. Because not only was Andy Summers not born in the 50s, it wasn't even close. <laughs> I think he was like 42. Yeah. 1942 when he was born. Now, God bless him. He's still out there. He's at what eighty something years old, and he's still touring. He's still touring. He's still. I mean, he's he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. This one's the other funny thing too about this is everybody has the same exact thought about when they were born. You look at it now. You know, you're saying you know it, he born in the fifties means that you were you know what a teenager in the sixties, right. and no one was going to tell us what to do, and we were the generation. And now all I hear about is you know. People that were born, you know, in the if you were a kid in the eighties or the nineties, and you don't understand now, we, you know, we go out all day. We rode our bikes. We didn't have mm-hmm. you know safe spaces or anything. It's the same concept. We're the bet. We're the baddest. Nobody knew it. you couldn't hang with us back then, right? And then also talk about some historical stuff like mommy cried the day Kennedy died and stuff like right, that. Right, right. You know? It's a little slow to me at first. It, it, you're right, but it picks up nicely in the in the. I guess the bridge part of it. Yeah, it becomes actually one of the more rocking tunes on the album, really. Yeah, yeah. But but it's not quite like fast enough to be like a punk song. That's why I would say it's a, it's a rocker. I mean, it's I mean, and the amount of noise for just three blokes, man, <laughs> is pretty yeah. damn good. Yeah, and I can imagine too when they when they kind of debuted this in '78, you know they they were then contemporaries of pretty much everybody in the in the place, so they you could relate a lot more I think to what they were talking about. Like, yeah, I lived through that too. Yeah, and I I, I never really loved this song, but it, on reexamination, I see its value. Obviously, mm-hmm. I wasn't born in the in the '50s. I was born in the '70s. You know, so the '50s people born in the '50s are old. You know, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. <laughs> But you know, it's 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 a pretty good little rockin' tune. Yeah, yeah. Now, be my girl, mm-hmm. Sally, which is an Andy Summers co-write. The only co-write he gets on this album. Again, anytime Sting lets Andy or Stewart participate in the songwriting, it gets weird. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and this is weird. Yeah. There's, I have a, I have a note here about how, you know, this was your first, I guess, introduction to the, to the delicious weirdo that is Andy Summers. <laughs> That's right. Because it starts off one way and then it goes, it takes a pretty hard left turn when you find out exactly what he's talking about. Since Sally came my way, I wake up in the morning and have her on a tray. She's everything they said she was, and I wear a permanent ring, and I only have to worry. In case my girl wears thin. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which is a blow up doll. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you start <laughs> off with, you know, oh, won't you be my be? Oh, okay. You know, he's got this girlfriend or a girl that he's infatuated with. And isn't that great? Oh, wait a minute. He's taught. And then Summers comes in with the spoken word 
and he's talking about a blow up doll. Yeah. And when he when he gets into that, like there's that kind of that piano, like that weird kind of yeah offbeat piano in the back. So it's like, are you insane? I know. Or what's going on here? Like, are you thinking this is a real thing and you're having a real relationship with this blow up doll? You're a very strange person, Andy. Yeah, it's 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 a strange one, you know, because <laughs> he does that spoken word bit in the middle, and they go back to the repetitive chorus, which is more punk. Would you yeah. be my girl? Would you be my? Yeah. At, at first, like the, the, the they have some who like harmony vocals at the start. I'm like, oh, okay, there might be something to this, but it devolves. It, it's it's just it's kind of between the repetition and then the spoken word part. It's a little too odd for me. Yeah, it, but but it's a it's a it's a cool album track. I like it, and it's also cool because I'm sure you you once you figure out oh this is you know kind of the inside joke that he's you know if you saw the title, but then you really realize he's talking about a blow up doll. Oh ha ha ha! Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it it's a nice almost the end of the record track. But, but that's also kind of punk too. If you're singing about a blow up doll, you know okay yeah well, all right fine, I guess. But it's not quite the end, is it? No. Mm-mm. Because it's, the record ends with Masoko Tanga. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Which is damn near six minutes long, easily the longest song on the album. And it's the only one they never really played live. <laughs> which is which is too bad because the beat is cool. I mean, basically, it's just an instrumental. He's just kind of riffing on the what they're playing. It's It's not a bad song. It's just strange because it doesn't have any real lyrics to it yeah right it's got a good reggae vibe to it like so many songs of the album stings using his voice more as an instrument than as a way to communicate mm-hmm. thoughts or feelings yeah it, it, it's different it, it's probably a good last song on the album kind of thing but you know i mean you, you kind of wonder i mean it, because no time this time which was a B-side, which ended up going on Regatta de Blanc. I mean, it, it wasn't good enough to make the first album, but it was good enough to make the second album. And they didn't rework it, apparently. They didn't change it from its B-side version to that. So it's like, this. they thought this was a better fit than that would be. I thought that that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I, I'd like to know the the thinking on that, because this, this to me, this almost sounds like an unfinished song. Like, you know, he's the, the stuff that he puts in there was just kind of a placeholder mm-hmm. to maybe put real lyrics in, and then they just said, nah, it's good enough how it is. So uh, there's definitely a story behind this. Yeah, probably so, but I, I couldn't find a whole lot on it just because there's so many other songs of the album that people know and love. Right. Yeah, that that's the tough one with an album like this is you've got, you're right, you've got the ones that people love that they've got, you know, pages and pages and pages on, and then they're like, oh yeah, and then they did a couple extra at the end. Yeah, yeah. Now, Dead End Job, which was the, the B-side of uh, Can't Stand you, Losing You, I went ahead and listened to that again, uh, and it's pretty frantic at the start and it's it's very punk like you know don't want to be no number you know especially with sting knowing that if i become a teacher and i'm a teacher my whole life that might be steady and you might end up getting a pension one day but that's like you're stuck on repeat it's like oh wait it's mm-hmm. september okay now i'm welcoming the new yeah, students you know, you know yeah. yeah now it's you know it's bay i'm saying you know it's it's like you kind of get stuck there he wanted something more from his life very spacey guitar solo 
from mm-hmm. Andy in here. But then and it's it's a very punk song. And then you get into this weird spoken word thing from Andy again. And I'm like, okay, now I can see why this wasn't on the album because they already <laughs> had one of those. Yeah. You know? Yes. Electrical There is some stuff where you just have to say, yeah, we're not, we're not doing this. We will include it somewhere, but yeah, this is not, this is not going on the album. Right. Yeah. So it's like, okay. Yeah. And they did include it and, and Stuart got his co-write and his 25% commission from all the sales of can't stand losing you, at least the, uh, <laughs> the, the actual singles. See, that must be something that like streaming and downloading that sting loves. It's like, finally, I don't have to share B sides with people. You want my hit songs. You just give them, you just go oh, yeah. buy those Enjoy one with- at a time straight from me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause sting is unpoor. Uh, and after that huge tour, all of them are unpoor, but sting is even more unpoor than yeah, the I rest think- of them. I mean, you figure he's he's got the the bulk of the uh, the publishing money, and then I mean, I think he sold like he's probably sold 40, 50 million copies of his own record. So yeah, he's not to mention all, all right. the tours he did on his own and, yeah. and everything else. Not to mention his wife is a movie producer. She's unpoor in her own right. You know, it's not like she's dragging him down. Like oh, I need you know money for shit. All right, fine. No, he's, <laughs> Trudy has her own thing going on. You know, so yeah, so. I mean, as far as debut albums go, and we've had some interesting ones from 78, right? I mean, Van Halen's debut album is pretty iconic, big time. Mm -hmm. Dire Straits' debut album, which we did earlier this year, which was actually pretty big for us as far as downloads goes with Sultans of Swing on it. That's big. So this time, I mean, you know, this time is a very interesting time as far as, you know, what's what's going on in the in the music business that the, the Aerosmiths are starting to start to lose their wind kiss is, is kind of overblown. And now we've got this kind of new stuff coming in, you know, with the Van Halen's and the police's and the dire straits. That's, it's going to change things. going to, it's setting us up for the eighties. Yeah. And, and even though this is, they would become something a lot different, the police, this still holds up. And, and this is a real nice, Oh yeah. A lot more straight ahead, a lot more, I don't want to say the synchronicity is not accessible, but it, in some places it's a little overblown. Where this is kind, of, this is not. This still holds up really well, and the testament to that is them playing a decent amount of these on the reunion tour. Well, yeah, exactly. They, they played as many off of this as they did off of synchronicity. Mm-hmm. So that just tells you how, how highly they regard it. Yeah, how they how they still love these songs. They still they still hold them in high regard. They still enjoy playing them, and it's still a reflection of them as a band. Yeah, and I, I think it also because the synchronicity sessions they couldn't be in the same room together Mm. they were starting to fall apart sting was already thinking i should leave after this and then it becomes enormous and i was like okay now i'm definitely gonna leave (laughs) but at this point they were still all like in that van together every night correct you know eating dinner together every night you know you know figuring out the songs every single night so you know it, it probably reminds them of a happier time in their lives as well at least as a band yeah there, yeah there is something you said for being poor and for you know like you said he could have been the teacher 
but and and Summers could have been session. He guy. could have been a session guy, but throwing it all away or. It, not throwing it all away, but throwing all in with this band. Like, we, we are going to make this work. Yeah, and it did, Boyo. I mean, my goodness, you know, <laughs> huge, huge. Not only that's just huge sales, but a huge impact on culture, you know, and on <laughs> music together. Honestly, this is mostly a reggae album. Right. And the only other reggae album I have would be like Bob Marley, and then eventually maybe I have a Peter Tosh, and like, that's it, you know. Yeah. But it's not quite reggae, and it's not quite punk, and it's... It's kind of them it's, finding their own sound. Yeah, it, re- it really is their own thing. Well, that is our take on The Police's debut from 1978, Outlandos Demore, spawning the hits Roxanne, Can't Stand Losing You, and for me, personally, that song just means a whole lot to me. Not only is it a wonderful song, it's a song that I came to at an important time in my life, but it was also one that I heard in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Where were we? I think we were in Bora Bora or someplace crazy like that. My wife-to-be, she was just my girlfriend at the time. We were having a nice dinner. I said, all right, well, you know, let's, let's go to this bar over here and see what they got. Little Polynesian or Pacific Native folks playing rock and roll, and one of the songs they jammed out to was so lonely and from that day on it was important to both of us and eventually we did come home we did get married and we did have them play that song at our wedding obviously the police went on to bigger and better things from 1978 through 1983 and beyond when they got back together in 2007 2008 time but think of 1978 as a very interesting time in rock and roll folks a lot of the bigger bands like the zeppelins and the black sabbaths and the aerosmiths eh, they were starting to have some wear. They're starting to kind of break up and go a little bit of different direction. Whereas punk and new wave are really starting to come in. And some of the records that we've already previewed before, like Van Halen's debut came out in 78, like Dire Straits' debut came out in 78. Now we're doing the Police's debut. I think the Cars' first album came out in 78. Very different bands, but all those bands had a huge effect on the 1980s. Certainly rock and pop music and had big effects on MTV. We came in at Every Breath You Take and Synchronicity, but coming back to find this one is great. Very reggae, little bit of punk, but very much their own. A unique sound that is very much the police and was until the day they broke up and then got back together and broke up again. So we want to know, folks, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. Please email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know about the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties you want to hear us talk about. And be sure you subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify. Good Pods has been very good to us. We end up in the top 10 on a lot of their lists. It doesn't really matter where you get it. Just make sure you subscribe and download. And if you're thinking about it, hey, give us a positive review. It's huge for us. It means the world to us. And it helps us find more rock and roll fans like you. Helps us grow the show. And if if we see it or you send it to us, we'll probably read it on the show. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on the artist formerly known as Twitter under ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. We're also on Instagram. We're on threads. We're on YouTube. I think we're on Facebook. Check out our shop. Get your Wolf merchandise 
at our shop, which you can find at ugly underscore werewolf on my X account. And be sure to visit our sponsor, rarevinyl.com. Use the code ugly and save yourself 10% off your police albums or whatever you might be looking for there. They have an amazing selection and they'll hook you up. Now we've had a nice run of a lot of nice guests and we have some really exciting guests coming up here very, very shortly. I can't really give them away, A, because I don't want to spoil the surprise, B, I'm not really sure when they're all coming on. But I do know that we've got some great stuff coming up for you, so if you like the run we've been on, stay with us. I think you'll enjoy it. So until next time, to all you rockers all around the world, be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.